go to the Old Testament, and we're going to be in page 448 in your Bibles. We're going to look at Psalm 1, the very first psalm in the book of Psalms. And just a little thing about the book of Psalms, it's really the largest book in the Bible. It is at the very center of your Bible. Usually when people or pastors are telling their people where to turn their Bibles, they just say, open up the middle, that's the Psalms, and then we'll go from there. Uh, it's got the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. It's got the shortest chapter in the Bible. It is actually the book of the Old Testament that is quoted most frequently in the New Testament. And the book of Psalms really is, uh, it is a collection of songs and prayers and prophecy and teaching. Psalms actually is a Greek word that just refers to songs. And the Hebrew word for the title of this collection is praises. Um, not all the songs are literal songs, but they are poetic. A lot of them were meant to be sung. You'll see at the top of a lot of them, it'll say to the choir master with stringed instruments. And they were, they're actually basically like the, the Israelites hymn book. Do anybody know what a hymn book is? Do any of you know what a hymn book is? Basically, it's just a book with a whole bunch of songs. I know, Luis, you were telling me about it. You got one of those. Um, basically, it's just a collection and songs that are compiled, gathered together for the people of God to sing uh, for their time of worship uh, when they come together. And so the book of Psalms, actually, the interesting thing about it was that it was written over probably about 900 years' time, the oldest going back to the time of Moses. Psalm 90 was actually written by Moses, and they extend all the way uh, to about 500 B.C. So basically a period of 900 years, you have these songs and praises written by the people of God, and then at one point, they're all collected together and compiled in this book. And the, what's characteristic about the Psalms is it's very personal. It's very intimate. You know, some books we're reading, and they're, they're historical. They're t- giving us a history. Or some are uh, a lot of instruction, straightforward teaching. And others are books of prophecy. Well, the book of Psalms actually reflects the hearts of individual people of God that basically are looking to him in faith in the mess of life in a fallen, broken world, and as they're waiting for him and his kingdom to be established on the earth. And so we see a lot of intimate expressions in the Psalms, people in the heights of joy and the depths of sorrow. And when this book was compiled together, there were some decisions made as to which Psalms would go in a particular order. And when they're all compiled together, We have Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. They basically were put there to serve as the introduction to the entire book. And so we're actually going to look at Psalm 1 this morning. And it's a little different than most of the Psalms. It's actually referred to as a Psalm of Wisdom. It's not necessarily a song or a prayer. It's really an instruction on godly wisdom. And it basically stands at the beginning of the book of Psalms, kind of like a gateway, a doorway to the entire book. And it's going to show you the way of godly wisdom. And it was placed here to introduce us the entire rest of the book. And so in this psalm, the first psalm, we're going to look at two ways of life that are presented to us. It's going to be the godly way that flourishes and the ungodly way that perishes. That's basically the way this psalm is broken down. And we're going to see that. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles, is everybody there? 448. Let's just read the entire Psalm, it's six verses, and then we'll begin our time here. So starting with verse 1. Blessed is the man 
who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so we look at two ways in life that are presented to us, a godly way in an ungodly way, a way that flourishes and a way that perishes. And starting in verse 1, we have this phrase, blessed is the man. And to say that somebody is blessed is essentially to say that they're in a state of true happiness. You could just translate it and say, happy is the man. But this is not a momentary feeling of pleasure. It's not a temporary assessment of your surrounding circumstances. Kind of like when we think of the word happy, I'm happy. It's more than that. It's not limited, superficial, short-lived happiness. The blessed man is an individual who is truly happy. He's experiencing contentment, joy, satisfaction, well-being. Most often when the term blessed is used in Scripture, it's emphasizing the happiness that results from someone being right with God. So if somebody is blessed, they are happy as a result of being right with God. And if you look even in, further in the book of Psalms, you'll see blessed is the man, you'll see that phrase, and you'll see blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is he whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. You also see, let's say, blessed is he whose trust is in the Lord, whose strength is the Lord. So when we see blessed is the man, we're not talking about just anyone, we're actually talking about the happiness of the believer, the one whose trust is in the Lord. So it's a happiness that results from his being right with God. The blessed individual is a believer. His life is in right relationship with God, and the results from the goodness of that relationship, he has joy and peace within himself. That's the result from his relationship with his creator. It is well with his soul. That's the kind of happiness we're looking at here. The blessed individual, he's not merely to be admired, say, oh, it's, it's nice, you're happy, I'm happy that you're happy, that's great. He's not merely to be admired, he is to be envied with desire. Basically saying, hey, he's got something great that I don't have, I would love to have that, how can I get that? How can I know that kind of happiness? So don't you desire true happiness? I think I hear that a lot. People are just on a quest in life. I'm just trying, I just want to be happy. And they search the world. They, they search different relationships, different jobs, anything to try to find happiness. And I would say that's true of us too. I mean, we could say that we do desire true happiness. The question is, where do we find it? And where do we find happiness that is lasting, that is permanent, that we could say it is well with my soul? So when you hear the phrase, blessed is the man, the way the psalm opens, this gets your attention. Blessed is the man who, I'm listening, let's hear it. Let's hear what he has to say. 
This is how the introduction to the entire book of Psalms begins, and it's the introduction to this very first psalm we have here. So the first thing we're going to see is that this blessed man, he's blessed because he's not influenced by the world. So it says, blessed is the man who does not walk or walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So what the psalmist is beginning to do is he's beginning to explain the blessed man by what he does not do. True happiness belongs to the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Y'all might be familiar with the term walk. I mean, you spent quite a bit of time in 1 John, and John talked about walking uh, as a way of life. That's basically a figurative way of saying his way of life, his manner of life, the direction he is going, his lifestyle, pattern of living. So to describe someone's walk is to describe that person's general lifestyle. And so we see this phrase, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Counsel refers to advice, guidance, instruction. Therefore, to walk in someone's counsel can be understood to mean to follow that person's advice, to listen to his instruction, to receive his guidance. It's to take his philosophy of life and make it your own. That's what it means to walk in someone's counsel. And the main focus here is influence. That is the influence on the mind, on the thinking. The wicked are simply those who are living in continuous rebellion against God. It's another word for unbelievers. It's not some special class of uh, extra bad sinners. It really is It's a contrast between the righteous and the wicked, the godly and the ungodly, sinners and saints, believers and unbelievers. So they're unbelievers, they're faithless, they're those who don't have a saving relationship with God. And putting all this together, the blessed man is described as someone who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, meaning he is someone whose mind, it's not being shaped by ungodly influences. So the blessed man is someone whose mind is not being shaped by ungodly influences. He refuses to accept the opinions and the values of those who are opposed to God. Now we have looked at just the first three lines that appear to be very similar, right? Walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of similar, uh, sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. You see that? There's, there's a similarity to them. And what you're seeing here is called parallelism. It's a, it's a literary device. It's the most common characteristic of Hebrew poetry, and that's essentially what we see in the book of Psalms. It's all Hebrew poetry. The book of Proverbs is also the same. And we see this a lot in this form of writing and it basically is a way of expressing one idea in two or more different ways i'm saying basically the same thing more than once because i'm trying to make a point so we have this parallelism here and the way i'm saying it i'm not just simply restating my point i'm saying it in a way that there's similar grammar there's similar vocabulary there's similar sentence length and it's a way to give emphasis or weight or attention to a main thought And this is important because this is going to help us understand the second and third lines that we see in the scripture. So with each line, the writer, he may expand on what he's saying. He may build upon the main idea. He may come at the idea from different angles. But there's still a main idea linking all of those lines together. So keeping this in mind, this is going to help us understand what he's trying to say and what he is telling us in the second and third 
lines. The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, right? His thinking is not being shaped by ungodly influences. Nor, second line, stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. The stand in the way of sinners basically means to imitate their lifestyle, their manner of life, their behavior. So again, you're seeing what this this psalmist is doing. He's talking about the man who's blessed is someone whose lifestyle is set apart, it's distinct, it's not influenced by the life of the ungodly, those who rebel against God, those who are not in a saving relationship with their creator. The blessed person does not imitate the sinner's lifestyle, the unbeliever's manner of life, wicked behavior. He does not participate in sinful activities. You may ask, okay, aren't all people sinners? Well, yeah, that's true. Of course, we want to deny that. I am a sinner. But again, just like the category of the wicked, the category of sinners here is just referring to those who are living in continual opposition and rebellion against God. They are not in a saving relationship with God. So true happiness belongs to the one who does not imitate their lifestyle. And now look at the third line. It says the blessed man does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Proverbs 21, verse 24, gives us a definition of that, again, an idea of what scoffer is. It says, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. So the term scoffers can also be translated mockers. They're those who, who mock God and they mock God's people. They're arrogant and they're proud and they boast. This is referring in general, again, not necessarily to a specific group of people, but to a general class of those who are in rebellion against God. The phrase sit in the seat, it's not talking about literally sitting in a chair. We're dealing with poetry, so there's a lot of figurative language here. It's a Hebrew word for seat that's translated, or the Hebrew word that's translated seat, it also means assembly. And so to say that somebody is sitting in someone's seat, or the seat of scoffers is to say he's sitting in their company, he's keeping their company. But the psalmist says the blessed man doesn't keep the company of the unbelievers, the wicked. He refuses to associate with scoffers. In no way can he be identified as one of them. And I had an idea of uh, just what, uh, you see scoffing and mocking all the time in our culture, don't you? I mean, when you turn on the TV, Christianity, God, Jesus Christ are mocked. They're scoffed at. Recently, there was a, some sort of uh, skit on Saturday Night Live that uh, made all these headlines because it basically was making a complete mockery of Jesus Christ and portraying him in, in some sort of uh, irreverent, uh, blasphemous uh, portrayal in a, like a movie trailer. And it's just a mockery of Jesus Christ. And some people were just so offended. And there was an outcry. Uh, and some some sponsors pulled their sponsorship, like Sears and J.C. Penney, just because of just how outlandish that was. But the, the, the strange thing is, is that's the minority. The minority of people uh, are offended by that. And it's really the people of God who see this is a serious thing. You are blaspheming. You are mocking God. You are mocking Christ. But it's accepted in our culture. It's accepted in our society. So the blessed man is someone who has nothing to do with that. You know, there maybe there are times on your television where you see, um, maybe there's a show you like, but then some of the episodes, they just start, keep making cracks about Christ or Christianity. You know, there is a point where you just got to 
disassociate yourself from that. Sometimes I want to, I feel like I have to leave the room because I'm afraid the roof's going to cave in on me. So this is the idea here, is association with, uh, the company with people who mock God, who are in rebellion against him. So putting all this together, the main idea communicated in these three lines, in this first verse, is that the blessed man has separated himself from ungodly influences. He avoids ungodly advice. He avoids ungodly activities and ungodly associations. Therefore, true happiness belongs to the worshiper of God who is not influenced by the world. So the question is, what are the influences in your life? That can give us a moment to reflect. Influence is something that's not as... Uh, what's actually more readily available, I would say, today more than ever, right? In the electronic age, the media age, we have internet access, our television sets. There is influence coming into your home, right into your living room every day. What kind of influences are in your life? So we've seen that the blessed man is characterized by what he does not do. That's how the psalmist begins. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to describe what the blessed man does do he's already showed us what does not influence his life and now he's going to show us what does influence his life so look at verse two and we're going to see that the blessed man he's not influenced by the world but he's influenced by the word verse two reads but his delight is in the law of the lord and on his law he meditates day and night now law of the lord now, we typically hear the word law, what comes to mind? Probably the Ten Commandments. Maybe we're thinking of some sort of legal code. Uh, Ten Commandments, probably first thing come, come to mind. Uh, however, the law of the Lord, that phrase, primarily, when you see that in the Old Testament, primarily what it's referring to is actually the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy the Israelites viewed that as one book, and they called it the Torah, which is also which is Hebrew for law. So they called it the law of the Lord. It contained God's written revelation given through Moses. Moses wrote those first, what we call five books. The Israelites would say that's one book. It was given through Moses to the people of Israel after God had delivered the Israelites from the bondage in Egypt and before he was going to bring them into the promised land. He gave them his instruction he revealed his will in a book. So the Israelites viewed these first five books as one book. They called it the Torah, which means law. It also means instruction. So it was God's revelation of his will, his plan and purposes for his creation and for them as they were about to enter the promised land and instructed them in how they were to live as his people, to be his kind of people in the land he was giving to them. Therefore, we could simply say the law of the Lord is basically the Bible for the Hebrews at the time. Just like, I don't know if it was last week we were talking about that, in the New Testament, uh, in the first century, in the time of Christ, in the time of the apostles, when the New Testament was being written, the Bible at the time was really the Old Testament. So people in the times of the first century, in the times of the apostles, their Bible really was the entire Old Testament. So in the progress of history, God's book has expanded. But the law of the Lord primarily referring to those first five books it's the instruction of god and so we can conclude the principle here is that the blessed man is the man who delights in the law of the lord the instruction of the lord or the word of god and so we can relate that to ourselves 
directly today. Not just specific commands of God, but all of his will that he's revealed in his word. However, he doesn't just delight in the law of the Lord. He doesn't just delight in the word of God. The psalmist adds this to his statement. On his law, he meditates day and night. So he doesn't just delight in God's word. He actively pursues it and grows in it. He studies it. He gives it careful thought. He reflects upon it in order that he might obey it. And actually, this is interesting. The word meditate, the Hebrew word for meditate, literally means to mutter or to read in an undertone. You think muttering something under your breath, right? And that may sound strange at first. We tend to think of meditate as something that's strictly an activity of our brain. Um, or perhaps we associate only with silent study, right? You know, if I could go, I'm meditating. That's kind of the idea. And this is not the false religion type of Buddhism kind of meditation like this, because what they're trying to do is empty their mind. We're talking about a filling of the mind. So studying, giving something careful thought, reflecting upon it. And the word meaning mutter or read in an undertone This actually makes sense because here's the thing. The Israelites, they didn't have the blessing and advantage that we necessarily have of having a written copy of the scriptures at all times. They didn't have written copies of the word of God in their possessions, so they relied a lot more on having to commit it to memory, to internalize it in their thinking so that they could take it with them where they would go. And that's what David meant when he said in Psalm 119.11, Put it up on the screen here. You can see this. This is a great verse. Great verse to memorize. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So the idea is committing it to memory. And here's the thing. Have you ever tried to memorize scripture? Anyone? Or or have you tried to memorize anything else? Typically, what do you do? I mean, what's the easiest way? You just say it, right? You speak it over and over and over. And that's why songs, a lot of times, are a lot easier to remember song lyrics because you're singing them, aren't you? You're saying them over and over. And that's the other interesting thing about the book of Psalms. Most of them are songs, so they're written in poetry, so they're easy to remember and to recite and really to internalize and to remember. So with regard to the phrase, back to this verse, day and night, the psalmist isn't indicating that the blessed man spends... He sets aside some specific time at the beginning and end of each day to meditate on God's word. He's saying more than that. He's pointing out the fact that meditating on God's word is an ongoing, persistent activity in the blessed man's life. One commentator wrote this. We have this quote up on the screen. Meditation is not the setting apart of a special time for personal devotions, whether morning or evening, And I would say there's nothing wrong with personal devotions. We encourage that. Do it in the morning and evening. But it's more than that. He says it's a reflection on the word of God in the course of your daily activities. Regardless of the time of day, regardless of the context, the godly respond to life in accordance with God's word. Even where the word is not explicit, the godly person has trained his heart to speak and act with wisdom. So meditating on God's word day and night is, it's not an activity reserved for scholars 
And it's not something that's limited to a couple times a day. It's an ongoing activity. And it's not just studying the word in an academic setting. Academic setting. It's for every worshiper of God who desires to be successful and living life according to God's standards, which produces true happiness within. So I'll say that again. Meditating on the scriptures constantly, continually, is an activity for every true worshiper of God who desires to be successful and living his life the way God intended him to live it. And from that, by doing that, true happiness will be his experience. So true worshipers of God, they love his word, they grow in his word, and it's a both and, not neither or. So some may study the Bible out of curiosity or out of obligation, I don't know, and be indifferent to it, or maybe even despise it. Others may speak very highly of the Bible and claim to love it, but not necessarily spend any personal time in it. There are many people who say, I love the word of God, and then... Could you just turn to, open up to the book of Psalms, and um, there's not a lot of familiarity with it. And again, like Pastor Jeremy had said not too long ago, we're not talking about somebody who's new in the faith, who is just starting out. We're talking about people who are long in their walk with Christ, and yet they're neglecting the word of God. So true worshipers of God, they not only love his word, but they grow in it, and they do that by consistent reflection, study, reading of the word. So the blessed individual is one who delights in and grows in the word of God. And so may the same be said of us. May it be said of us that we are lovers of God's word and we are students of God's word when people look at us. That's what we want. We want to be people of the book, people of the scriptures. That's what really characterizes Summit too. The priority is the scriptures, the word of God. Everything we do really centers around growing in our knowledge of God's will revealed in his word. This is what produces true happiness and this is the godly way that flourishes. So to conclude what the psalmist says in these first two verses, he says true happiness belongs to the worshiper of God who's not influenced by the world, but he's influenced by the word of God. And he then shows us that this man flourishes in his life as a result verse 3 read along with me he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither you know the climate in israel it's very similar to southern california isn't that something that that'll help you in your bible study actually you say what is it like you know it's basically it's like here in southern california it's summers are they're dry and hot uh, Year-round doesn't receive a whole lot of rainfall. Uh, the rainfall that does occur can vary quite a bit. And being beside streams of water, we see a tree planted by streams of water. Well, that would certainly allow a tree to flourish. And the difference would be drastic between that tree and a tree that grows in a dry field somewhere. The tree beside streams of water would always be able to drink its fill. And the result of a constant water supply, it's going to bear its fruit regularly its leaf is not going to wither even in times of drought or times of dry and hot summers it's beside streams of water it has that endless water supply and that's the picture the psalmist is creating for us here and he's saying this is the way it is for someone who loves god word loves god's word and meditates on it day and night he's like this tree the one who meditates on god's word day and night is refreshed by the word of god 
He's revived by the word of God. He's renewed by the word of God. He's cleansed by the word of God. And he's satisfied by the word of God as he draws upon it like water, like a tree drawing water from a stream. And as a result, he's spiritually healthy. And he bears fruit and he matures. And this imagery of bearing fruit, what exactly does that look like in your life? We see similar imagery in the New Testament. Paul explained in Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23, we'll put it up on the screen. He talked about the fruit of the Spirit, and here's what he said. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So when we think about fruit in somebody's life, we're not necessarily talking always about material blessings, but bearing fruit from within, fruit that is like that fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Basically, fruitfulness is evidence of a person's conformity to God's will as revealed in his word. So fruitfulness is evidence of his conformity to God's will as revealed in his word. It's evidence of somebody's obedience to the word of God, and it's evidence of somebody's transformation by the work of the Holy Spirit through the scriptures. That's what fruitfulness is. So back to the illustration of the tree. Notice that it's not just a tree that just happens to grow by a stream. That's a, that's a fortunate tree. It just happens to grow right by a stream. It doesn't say that. It doesn't just happen to grow alongside a river. It is planted. And it's planted alongside streams of water. And here's the important thing to know. Streams of water in this verse, it doesn't refer actually to like a natural river, a natural stream. It actually refers to man-made irrigation channels. Do you have any farmers out here? Do people like to dabble in growing gardens and crops? Well, man-made irrigation channels, the point, the picture here, it's, it's more like a garden. It's not just somewhere out in a field and there's a river and a tree's going, growing, happens to grow right by it. It's a tree that has been deliberately planted in a garden right next to an irrigation channel where it's being deliberately supplied with a constant flow of water. So he's planted in the garden and the work is performed by a master gardener. That's the picture that's painted here. I would say this is a great picture of God's grace. God has planted and secured the blessed individual, placing him under his loving protection and care and sustaining him with his word. That's the picture of God's grace in the believer's life. In verse 3, the end of it, he says, in all that he does, he prospers. Again, just like I was saying about fruitfulness, prosperity here, usually a red flag goes up. We think prosperity, wait, are you teaching like health and wealth, fame and fortune? Is that the kind of prosperity that the word of God is promising us? That's not true. It's not necessarily material prosperity. And I wouldn't rule that out. Of course, every good and perfect gift comes from God. We know that he supplies us with all our needs, and some of those are material needs. But the idea that the blessed man prospers in all he does is basically he's a guy who lives life, a man or a woman who lives life God's way. He will have success according to God's standards. That's what it is. Prosperity is success according to God's standards. And here's an example. You have a Christian husband and a wife. You know what? They're guaranteed to have a successful marriage if they are obedient to God's word. 
That's probably the simplest biblical counsel, marriage counsel I can give you. You are guaranteed to have success in your marriage if you simply obey God's word. Do you know that? It's 100% guarantee. If they truly love one another, if a, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, truly love one another as God has called them to do, and if they fulfill their roles as husband and wife according to the standards God has set, their marriage will flourish. And so it is with anything in life. It is the word of God. It is God's standard. We live by it 100% guaranteed success according to God's standards. And we don't limit that, again, like I said, to some short-lived material idea of success. Success means that we are living life God's way, and we're benefiting from that. The problem is that because we're still sinners, we often choose to love ourselves and serve ourselves rather than God and rather than others. That's what the problem is. The word of God never fails. And it should continually be our delight in meditation. And there's one more note on the concept of prosperity, kind of just in keeping with this idea that it's not always uh, success in a way that we might, the world usually understands. I got a job promotion. I got a new car. I am successful. I am prospering. It's not always that. It really isn't talking about that. Here's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. I, I, I like the way he was illustrating this because a lot of times prosperity can happen in, in ways that we don't expect. We can be successful, but we might not realize it. And so read along on the screen. It's a little lengthy, uh, but I just it was hard for me to trim it down too much because it was so good. He said, We must not always estimate the fulfillment of a promise by our own eyesight. To the eye of faith, this word, and he's referring to this promise of prosperity in this psalm, this word is sure, and by it we perceive that our works are prospered even when everything seems to go against us. It's not outward prosperity which the Christian most desires and values. It is soul prosperity which he longs for. It is often for the soul's health that we should be poor, bereaved, and persecuted. Our worst things are often our best things. As there is a curse wrapped up in the wicked man's mercies, so there is a blessing concealed in the righteous man's crosses, losses, and sorrows. Through trials, the saint grows and brings forth abundant fruit. It's a nice picture, isn't it? So a lot of times, and it, that's why we can say, no matter what our circumstances of life, blessed be the name of the Lord. Praise God. You know what? I'm blessed. Even when things are really not going my way, I know that God is in control, right? I know that he's doing something for my benefit to really conform me to his image, the image of Christ, to make me more the way he has intended me to be. So this verse concludes the first half of the psalm, which portrays the godly way of life that flourishes. The one who walks in this way, he knows true happiness, lasting happiness, permanent happiness because of a right relationship with God. And now we come to the second half of the psalm, which describes the other way of life, the ungodly way that perishes. Starting with verse 4, which reads, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So right off the bat, the psalmist starts with this very stark contrast. He's just compared to the godly person, the godly way, the blessed man, 
to a lush and fruitful and flourishing and well-rooted and green-leafed tree that is planted in a garden where it is protected and cared for and given an endless supply of water. And the psalmist compares the wicked to chaff. The wind blows away. That's the imagery. That's the contrast. A chaff consists of, like I said, you know, farmers are familiar with this, but I'm not a farmer, and I guess we don't have any farmers in here. Chaff consists of the thin, dry, scaly casings that cover seeds of grain. It's inedible, and it must be removed before the grain can be used. So first, in this process of removing this chaff, the chaff has to be loosened. This is done by pounding it or crushing it. This process is called threshing. And then, second step is the process of winnowing. And winnowing is basically when the grain, after it's pounded and grounded, it's tossed up into the air. And the grain, as it's falling back down, the breeze just blows that chaff away. That loose chaff just gets blown away by the wind. So you can picture that. The wheat, the seed, the grain that is valuable, that we you know, make a lot of food, bread, that benefits us, we have to remove that chaff, which is completely useless. It's pounded and crushed, thrown into the air, the wind blows it away. And that's the picture the psalmist is portraying when he says, the wicked are not so, they're like chaff, that the wind drives away. So to say that the wicked are like chaff, he is saying that they are unstable, they are insecure, they are useless, they are fruitless, they are worthless, and they are easily carried away. So notice how brief this illustration is. Like I said, we were talking about this tree. It's flourishing. It's planted by streams of water. Its fruit is growing. Its leaves don't wither. And then he just says, the wicked, yeah, like chaff, the wind drives away. That's it. He doesn't even give them that much time, does he? He's very brief. And even in the shortness of his illustration, he is indicating the worthlessness and the brevity of the ungodly life. Now look at verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. To say that the wicked will not stand in the judgment means that they won't stand, they won't withstand, they won't rise up in the judgment. They will not endure it. The congregation of the righteous here refers to the assembly of God's people. Like I said, the righteous just refers to those who are righteous by faith in God. They have a right relationship with God. It doesn't mean that they in themselves are righteous. They have been given a righteousness from God because they trust in Him. It's just believers and unbelievers, those who rebel against God and those who are in right relationship with Him. So the congregation of the righteous refers to the assembly of God's people, those who are righteous through faith in Him. And the psalmist is saying that the ungodly, who are like chaff, they will collapse at the final day of judgment. And they'll be permanently expelled from the company of God's people, from the presence of God's people. Like chaff that the wind drives away, so the wicked will be swept away in God's judgment and cast out from the presence of God's people. One commentator says this, the end of the wicked may not be clear while they are alive and busying themselves with wickedness. But from God's perspective, the wicked have no future. So the threat of God's impending judgment is looming over them. The head of everyone who rejects 
his word and lives according to the ways of the world and rebellion against him. Like the chaff, they hang on for a season, but the time of the harvest is coming and they'll be brought to nothing. They will not endure. They will not stand. The psalmist then makes, after this, he makes this concluding statement in verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. To say that the Lord knows the way of the righteous means that he is lovingly committed to caring for them, those who are his own. He watches over them and he guards their course of life, just like the master gardener watches over and cares for the tree that he planted in his garden by channels of water. That's the picture here. And I think of this idea of watch over, caring for, lovingly committed to caring for, watching over, and guarding. Uh, we just had our, our, our baby daughter, baby girl, and one of the things I just love to do is just stare at her, just look at her. And she doesn't even do anything. Half the time she's asleep. You know, just making little faces. I'm just like, just watching her for hours. And, I mean, the picture is the same with the way that God is looking upon those who belong to him, who love his word, meditate upon it, who trust in him. He is watching over them. Even when they don't even realize it, he is watching over their course of life for their good. He is guarding them. He is protecting them. The way of the wicked, on the other hand, is not cared for, and it's not guarded by the Lord. As a result, the way of the wicked is destined to perish. Now notice how this psalm focuses on the present life of the godly, but on the future destiny of the wicked. Do you see that? We look at the first three verses, it looks like he's really just talking about the life, the present life of the godly, but then we get to the wicked, and he doesn't really say much other than, here's how they're going to end. Here's how they're going to end up. This reminds us that although those who completely reject God's instruction, His word, His will, they may appear to have it good in this life, but we have no reason to envy them because we know their fate. We know how they're going to end up. Don't envy people who rebel against God, who reject His word, who are not influenced by the word of God. That should remind us to be secure in him and to trust that in the end we will stand and we will be remaining and the presence of the wicked will be entirely removed and we will love him, love our God and enjoy him forever in a renewed and restored creation where there is no wickedness, there is no sin. This psalm also reminds us to be more discerning as to what kind of influences are in our life, who or what we're being influenced by. But we must remove any ungodly influences from our life and prioritize God's word in our life. Like I said, whether it's stuff that you are reading, stuff that you are watching, even the job that you have. I mean, if you're in a place where you are coming under ungodly influence, there is a priority of yours that you should have to remove that. Remove yourself far from it because that is what the psalm is saying. That's the man who's blessed. The one who knows true happiness, he is set apart he has removed himself from ungodly influence and come under the influence of God's word. So it is a call for us to be discerning about the influences that are in our life. And finally, the psalm calls us to worship God. I would say it's really a call to worship because remember this, 
All of you who have a right relationship with God, guess what? At one point, you were like chaff. You were useless and worthless and destined to be carried away, to be made nothing, to perish. That is what we all were before the grace of God came in our lives and the personal work of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that by his grace we became like a flourishing tree. So there are only two ways in life, and that's what we see in this psalm. The godly way that flourishes as a result of being under the influence of God's word and the ungodly way that perishes as a result of being under the influence of the world. The question is, which way are you going? If the word of God really has no bearing on your lifestyle, then carefully consider the warning in this psalm about the ungodly way that you're living. Repent and trust the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins so that you may be uprooted from the desert, the wilderness of your sin and planted in the garden of God's grace. Only then will you truly delight in God's word and know true happiness that results from being in a saving relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to possess your complete written revelation that you have given us to instruct us in your ways, to teach us about yourself, that we might know you, and that we might live our lives in the way that you have created us to live them, Lord, that we might, as a result of that, know true happiness, Lord. Father, we ask that you keep us in the path of the godly instead of the path of sinners. May we remove any ungodly influence from our life, Lord. Pray that you would show that to us, anything that is having a bearing on our thinking and the way we're viewing the world, Lord. And I pray that you would spur us on to be diligent students of your word and we would cherish it like a tree cherishes that water and soaks it up and bears fruit. May your word be our delight and meditation day in and day out. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.